When I lived the life of a maritime missionary on the MV Logos Hope, we had weekly cabin inspections. It was a legal requirement, but for some people it really wasn't their favourite thing. I mean, think about it. Imagine being a father or a mother who's used to running your own household, and all of a sudden you live in a community where some bloke has the permission to let himself into your locked home, inspect it and grade it on a scale, or grade you on a scale, of one one to five. One being really good, while five means the captain will have to come around later and personally re-inspect your pigsty of a living space. One of our good friends who was used to getting a one every week got a four one week because an overly fastidious inspector found a piece of lint on the floor and the garbage can wasn't totally emptied, etc., etc. She was equal parts horrified, offended and livid. It became an item of discussion in our management team meeting. It was a big deal. And looking back, it was actually pretty funny, but at the time, it was no laughing matter. Anyways, as personal manager... I was on the cabin inspection rotor, so when it was my turn, I'd have to turn up at the technical administrator's office where I and my co-inspector would be handed a clipboard, a pen, a sheet of paper with all the cabins marked that we were to inspect, and a master key to all the accommodation sections of the ship. I used to quite enjoy walking around the ship, knocking on the doors and saying loudly, cabin inspection to give the inhabitants at least a few seconds warning. Sometimes I'd walk in on a watchkeeper sleeping, sometimes the cabin would be empty, sometimes someone would be in their tiny cabin reading or writing or on the computer. It was always awkward going into a cabin when someone was in there, you know, because I was inspecting their living space and kind of making a judgment call on how shipshape and tidy and clean it was. Then I'd hand them their sheet of paper with their score on it and I and my colleague would leave. My... My favourite moment would be when I was walking into an accommodation section and someone, usually female, would see these two people in her section with a clipboard and a master key jangling. A surprised look would invariably come across her face. What is Dan doing in my section? And why is he carrying a clipboard and a pen? I would see this writ large on her face. Then... I would see the realisation slowly dawn. The light would flicker on, accompanied by a look of horror. Cabin inspection day. Then she would do an about turn, abandon whatever plans she'd had up until that moment to make a beeline back to her cabin. As we were going from cabin to cabin, slowly moving nearer and nearer her cabin, we'd hear sounds of frantic tidying, vacuuming, cleaning, garbage bags being shoved in cupboards, etc., etc. Then the fateful moment would come when we'd knock on her door, we'd hear a cheery, come in, and we'd walk in to find the cabin spotless, the smell of lemon cleaning liquid still hanging in the air, and the individual sat calmly reading at her desk, probably the Bible, of course. Such was the power of the cabin inspector and the desire to be found ready and prepared. This is the first week in our, in, in our Advent series called uh, White Noise. And let's turn to Luke chapter 3 verse 1. Luke chapter 3 verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of 
of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now Israel had heard nothing from God for 400 years, not since Malachi wrote his last sentence in Malachi chapter 5 verse 3. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, sorry, which says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was God's signing off. This was God hanging up the phone. This was God terminating the Skype connection with his chosen people. This was the word left echoing in the ears of the Jews. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And now 400 years later, after this massively long, awkward silence from God, suddenly the sky appears out of the desert who looks and sounds like Elijah back from the dead. In fact, he's so reminiscent of Elijah that in John chapter 1 verse 21, this guy has to, has to actually deny that he is Elijah. John chapter 1 verse 21 says this, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This, this, this wild wilderness man is very Elijah-esque, but he's not Elijah. But what is apparent is that this prophecy, this promise that God made through Malachi, is now being fulfilled. That God picks up where he left off 400 years ago with this prophet, Elijah. Someone who looks and sounds like him. He's like Elijah version 2.0. The Jews have got a genuine prophet again and he's speaking words of authority And people start to get excited because it seems like God has finally reopened those lines of communication. The Skype ringtone is finally ringing again. And this Elijah-esque guy's name is John and he's baptizing people. He's dunking them in water as a sign of their repentance. So we give him a nickname, John the Baptist, which actually helps us to differentiate him from four other Johns in the Bible. There's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's John, uh, Simon Peter and Andrew's father, also called Jonah. There's John, who, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Then there's John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, who we call Mark. Four Johns. And so we call John the Baptist, John the Baptist, partly so we know who we're talking about, so we don't confuse him with the others in Wales. We do that too. We give people nicknames according to their occupation. Oh, no, no. Not John the Bus. I'm not talking about John the Bus who drives the kids to school. I mean John the Sheep. 
You know, from the farm. No, not that farm, that's John the Milk. The other farm, other side of town, up the valley. Aye, that's the one, John the Sheep, who lives next to Mary the Hare. You know, the one who did my mum's perm last week. Aye, that's the John, that's the one, John the Sheep. So, John the Baptist would have fit in nicely in the Welsh Valleys, but he wasn't a Baptist like like the denomination. Those didn't exist then. Some, some call him John the Baptizer because he baptized people. That was his thing. And as he was baptizing people, he preached. And he preached like the good old preachers. Not like, like those nicely mannered synagogue preachers, but like a wild man out of the desert who's got nothing to lose, a chip on his shoulder, and a message straight from God. And what he's proclaiming is, as Luke chapter 3 puts it, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is pretty extreme because what this means is that John was preaching a message kind of like this. Look, things have to change. You can't carry on the way you're going. You're living in sin. You're messed up. You have messed up. You're stuck in a rut and you can't get out. You're lost without a hope. You're heading in the wrong direction. You need forgiveness of your sins. But God doesn't want a bunch of people who give him a nod on the Sabbath and then carry on in their sinful ways the rest of the week. He wants people who are serious about him and getting right with him. This is the kind of message that John would be preaching and then, he, and then he might go on to say something like this. And the only way that they can do this is to repent, to about turn on their lives of sin and start pursuing God wholeheartedly. They need to get off the highway headed south, cross over on the overpass and get on the highway headed north. They need to repent. And God, he doesn't want them to repent in safety, in the safety and privacy of their own homes where there's no accountability. He wants to, them to do it in public, in full view of everyone. And to make sure we can tell the difference between those who are serious about God and those who are just playing a game, I'm going to get them to wade out into the filthy Jordan River and get baptized. This will be a sign to themselves and to everyone around them, their neighbors, their colleagues, their family, that they have died to the old way of life and are living a new life to God. It was a no-holds-barred message of zero compromise that God wanted everything. And he was using John to get this message out there. It was 2002 and I was serving God on the Logos 2 ship. There was a visit to a port in Mexico on the cards. I think maybe it was Quetzalcoatlcos. And we were excited. However, sometimes it's hard to fit our missionary ship into busy port's schedules. With the big bucks cruise ships on one hand and the time-sensitive cargo ships on the other, both needing access to berth space, sometimes we'd struggle finding a time and place that we could come alongside and open to the public. Now, in this port in Mexico, this was our problem. There was nowhere to put us. The place they wanted to put us had no public access. The port wall was in the way. Now, after a bunch of worrying and discussion and praying on our part, a solution was found by the port authority. The port authorities of Quetzalcoatlcos told us that they would break through the wall at the place where the ship was to be birthed. They would make a hole in the wall into the protected port area so that people could come to the ship for cheap literature and to be ministered to. The local authorities valued the arrival of the Logos too so much and were so excited about the opportunity this gave to the local people that they did everything they could do to make this arrival happen. <coughs> and so 
When we sailed into Quetzalcoatlcos, we were super excited, not only because it was a new port with new people and new ministry opportunities, but also because the people of the city showed how much they wanted us there by tearing down a wall. And my question for you is this. How much do you want Jesus in your life? How much are you determined to do everything possible to show God that he's welcome in your life? You see, I think there are many people for whom God sails into the port of their life and they respond by saying, hey God, it's good to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Glad you're here. But if you could just scale that wall or climb that mountain or cross that valley to me, that would be great. You do all the work. I'll just sit here and wait for you to break through. But that's not what we see here with John the Baptist. Luke, the writer, says that our response to God's impending arrival should be one of excitement and preparation and doing all things possible to prepare. Listen to verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now Luke chapter 3 verse 4 to 6 has words from a prophecy made in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 4 to 5 which was written while while the children of Israel were in exile in Israel. In Babylon, far away from their homeland, exiled because of their own sin and their refusal to repent and follow God's ways. They were experiencing the the consequences of their own sin. They were far from home. And that's where these lines come from the carol that we sang earlier. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Isaiah 40 was written from a place of loss, of grief, of regret. But in it there are words of hope from a lone voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming, get ready for him. Luke 3 that quotes Isaiah 40 was written from a a similar place of loss. God had not been heard from for 400 years. And in that time, since those last words of Malachi... um, through this time, the Jews had been ex- or though this time the Jews had not been exiled from their homeland, they had known the oppression of five empires: the Persians, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Egyptians, followed by the Syrians, and now the Romans. But now, in the midst of this, there are words of hope from another lone voice in the wilderness saying, "Prepare the way of the Lord." As the carol says. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The hope is on the horizon. John the Baptist is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just around the corner, the Lord is coming. People don't generally know that it's it's Jesus yet. Jesus is still incognito working as a carpenter. But John is pleading with the people to be ready, to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming. Here's a couple of questions that we'll be wrestling with and talking through in our grow groups this week. When you hear the words Christmas carols, what's the first song that pops into your head? The first image that pops into your head? What are you doing to prepare the way of the Lord? What's distracting you from Christ? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to build into your life? And what can you do 
to deliberately put meaning back into Christmas carols this season so that they're more than just white noise. Jesus is coming. This is the call that is before all of us today, a call to action, a call to repent, to believe, to experience the new life that comes through having our record of sin washed clean by Jesus Christ. And Advent is such a wonderful time to do this. It's such a natural time to stop, to pause, to consider, to take stock. Advent is a time to repent, to turn around, to get off the highway heading south and to get on the highway heading north. Advent is a great time to knock that hole in the wall of your life for the arrival of a king. It's about preparing the way. And there are four markers of someone who is preparing the way, four identifiers to look out for as we prepare the way for Jesus. We're not free to prepare in any way we see fit. We must do it in the way that God has commanded. And we see God's blueprint of preparation in verses 5 and 6. First, we prepare the way with tenacity. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled. This is a big commitment. This is a large-scale, earth-moving project. What is it in your life that needs to be filled up with God? What is it in your life that needs to be brought up to his level? What dark, shadowy, low place is there in your life where the light of God's truth is not currently allowed? How can you raise it up so that God can march through it in victory? It's going to take tenacity, perseverance stick within us to see it through it needs God to see it through and it doesn't just require tenacity it also requires humility it says and every mountain and hill shall be made low God's rightful place in your life is supreme not an add-on, not an afterthought, not a get-out-of-jail-free card. As someone has said, Jesus must be Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. So what is there in your life that needs to be lowered, reduced, leveled, raised to the ground? What is there that's sticking up proud and tall? Do you have a Tower of Babel that you're building to prove how great you are? In Second Kings 17 verse 29 it says this, But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. (coughs) So do you have high places in your life, places where you worship other gods, other idols? When the Lord God comes, every mountain and hill shall be made low. So take, take a leaf out of Gideon's book, who bravely tore down the idols in his, his town. How much do you want fellowship with God? You can see how much you want it by a determination to level these mountains in your life, these high places. Preparing for the coming of the Lord is not just about the, about, about the tenacity of uh, filling in the valleys of darkness and the humility of bringing down those mountains of pride. It's also about purity, making the crooked straight, as it says in verse 5. It's about honestly assessing your life and seeing what is, it in, what is in your life that does not reflect the purity of God's character. It's about taking stock, about pausing and inviting God to show you these, these crooked dealings or crooked habits or crooked thoughts that he wants to straighten out. It's about being honest with God and honest with yourself. It's about coming to God and saying to him, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me as the psalmist says in psalm 51 
We live in a world where we are told to ask, how much can I get away with? But following Jesus as his disciple is totally different. We're to ask, how straight can I make this road? How closely can I follow Jesus? You you never see a twisty, turny red carpet. They're always straight as an arrow. And preparing for the coming of the Lord is also about maturity. It's not just the hard work of filling in the valleys or the process of the removing of the mountains or the straightening of the crooked roads. It's also about the leveling of the rough places. And Now, the rough places aren't mountains or hills. They aren't valleys. Maybe they look little, small in comparison. It's the bumpy ground. The rough places aren't perhaps glaring sins that you and I would gasp out loud at, but they are areas of growth. Places perhaps where Satan still has a foothold, where he still has influence, where he can reset your trajectory just that little bit. Small compromises. The Christian life is not about arriving, at least while we're here on earth, but it is about becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming sanctified, becoming more holy. And here's the interesting thing. What, what may have looked like a rough place to you a few years ago might look like a mountain to you now. Because as you're walking with Jesus, your conscience becomes more sensitive, more sensitive to sin. And you realize that that thing that before you thought wasn't a big deal is still grieving him. And so you deal with it. You make those rough places smooth. The Israelites in exile were told to prepare the way of the Lord while they were in exile. And the Jews in Palestine were told to prepare the way of the Lord while they were under foreign occupation. And we're told today at the start of Advent to prepare the way of the Lord. And we do this with, 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 with tenacity and with humility and with purity and with maturity. Because we know what it's like to feel as if we're in exile, far from the land of promise. And, and for some of us here today, maybe we're still in exile, far from God, and God is calling us home. He's sending people into our lives, lone voices in the wilderness, saying, crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And for some of us, we feel like we've been invaded. We don't know when or how it happened, but we know that we're being besieged by forces bigger and stronger than ourselves. We feel like we've lost control, and we're longing for the return of the King, and for us God is also sending people into our lives, lone voices in the wilderness, crying, prepare the way of the Lord. Fill those valleys, it's saying, lower those mountains, straighten the crooked, level the rough places. Show tenacity, humility, purity and maturity as you spend your life preparing for the coming of the Lord. And the promise at the end of all of this is in verse 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. When the Lord moves into our lives, people start to see that God is alive, that Jesus saves and the Spirit sanctifies. When, when, when people see our changed lives, we become evidence that the Lord has come into our lives and is reigning when through God's mighty power we show that sin is losing ground to the rule of Jesus. We speak hope into others' lives. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. We all have friends and neighbours and family members who need to know that God the King desperately wants to overthrow the regime of self in their lives and establish his own rule in their lives. And because this is what he does. 
And the best way we can show them is to prepare the way of the Lord ourselves, to fill the valleys, to lower the mountains, to straighten the crooked, and to level the rough, so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. May that be our Advent prayer this season. As God answers our prayer by drawing others to himself, we can say, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel.